Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 43, the book of Revelation, chapters 19 and 20. This is the fourth week we've been dealing with Revelation chapter 19. But that's because there's so much here to examine and to learn from. Now the good news is that we're finally going to finish it today and, and move on into chapter 20. But remember that chapter 19 revolves around what is taking place mostly not entirely, mostly, in heaven, and so mostly in the spiritual sphere. And what is taking place is a noisy and joyous celebration over the final demise of Babylon the Great. Now we discussed in previous lessons that Babylon is representative of all that is evil and opposed to God on earth. And that while Babylon the Great is real, it's physical, it represents multiple entities that together form a kind of system. And it is also a spirit that has been alive, it's been passed down generation to generation. So it has appeared in one form or another throughout human history. Since Adam and Eve fell and sin entered the world. This means that elements of Babylon existed in Christ's day and before. It exists in our day and it will exist at its ultimate influence and wickedness in the end times. So the prophets of old wrote about her long before John was given his incredible visions of the future. Now, I found one of the most descriptive and riveting narratives about Babylon in an unlikely place. The tiny book of Jude in the New Testament. It's worth our while to read it. But as we do, I will tell you in advance that although we will not find the word Babylon in there, the description is unmistakable. Especially since we've studied about Babylon and Revelation for so long. And it is also worth mentioning that this book was written prior to John receiving his apocalyptic visions. So without the benefit of John's visions, what we find is that Jude is telling us about what was happening in his day, along with what the Lord has inspired him to write about the future. You're also going to recognize much of what he is speaking about as being active in our time. So open your Bibles to the book of Jude. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1531. 1531, the book of Jude. And by the way, I just 
love the opening to this book. That in itself is just worth going back to time and time again. Listen to this. From Yehuda, Jude. A slave of Yeshua the Messiah, brother of Yaakov. Right? Jacob is talking about James. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept for Yeshua the Messiah, may mercy and love and shalom be yours in full measure. Dear friends, I was busily at work writing to you about the salvation that we share when I found it necessary to write urging you to keep contending earnestly for the faith which was once and for all passed on to God's people. For certain individuals, the ones written about long ago as being meant for this condemnation have wormed their way in. Ungodly people who pervert God's grace into a a license for debauchery and they disown our only Master and Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. Now since you already all uh, know all this, my purpose is only to remind you that Adonai who once delivered the people from Egypt later destroyed those who did not trust. And the angels that did not keep within their original authority but abandoned their proper sphere, he is kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for the judgment of the great day. And Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities following a pattern like theirs committing sexual sins and perversions lie exposed as a warning of the everlasting fire awaiting those who must undergo punishment. And likewise, these people with their visions defile their own flesh, despise godly authority and insult angelic beings. When Michael, one of the ruling angels, took issue with the adversary, arguing over the body of Moshe, of Moses, he did not dare bring against him an insulting charge, but said, May Adonai rebuke you. However, these people insult anything they don't understand. And what they do understand naturally, without thinking like animals, by these things they're destroyed. Woe to them! in that they have walked the road of Cain. They have, been, they have given themselves over for money to the heir of Bilam. They have been destroyed in the rebellion of Korach. These men are filthy spots at your festive gatherings meant to foster love. They share your meals without a qualm while caring only for themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds. They are trees without fruit, even in autumn, and doubly dead because they've been uprooted. Savage sea waves heaving forth in their shameful deeds like foam, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Moreover, Hanoch, when the seventh generation starting with Adam also prophesied about these men, saying, Look! Adonai came with his myriads of holy ones to execute judgment against everyone, that is, to convict all the godless for their godless deeds which they have done in such a godless way and for all the harsh words these godless sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers, complainers. 
They follow their evil passions. Their mouths speak grandiosities. They flatter others to gain advantage. But you, dear friends, keep in mind the words spoken in advance by the emissaries of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. They told you during the Acharit Hayamim, the world to come, there will be scoffers following their own godless passions. They are the people who cause divisions. They are controlled by their impulses. They don't have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in union with the Holy Spirit. Thus keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for our Lord Yeshua the Messiah to give you the mercy that leads to eternal life. Rebuke some who are disputing. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And yet to others, show mercy, but with fear. Hating even the clothes stained by their vices. Now, to the one who can keep you from falling and set you without defect and full of joy in the presence of his Shekinah, to God alone, our Deliverer, through Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Now I want to draw your attention to several statements Jude made about some within the Messianic faith movement of his day that are people who cause divisions. Those who despite their claims of righteousness, some of them even of salvation, follow their own ways. Grumble, complain. They have no understanding of the truth. Oh, they join in the religious festivals. They share communal meals with their brothers and their sisters of the faith. But they bear no actual brotherly love. They care only for themselves. Jude compares them. I think it's an amazing image when you think about it. Waterless clouds. Trees without any fruit. That is, despite their pleasant appearance and their professions of faith, they are useless. Utterly useless. And their behaviors exhibit none of the expected responses to their salvation. Even worse, they can pollute the congregation of the faithful. Why? Because they do not have the Spirit. And after speaking about this issue as it was in his day in the first several verses, Jude transitions to talking about an indefinite future in verse 18. He says that if, if, if we're a part of such a fellowship like the one he describes, whether in his time or in the future, then this is what we're to do. And he says this in verses 22 and 23. Rebuke some who are disputing save others snatching them out of the fire and yet to others show mercy but with fear hating even the clothes stained by their vices I want to say this in modern everyday terms 
For those within your community of fellowship who want to argue and dispute to ensnare others into their deceived way of thinking and to divide the congregation, don't put up with it. Rebuke them. Put them on notice. It's not going to be tolerated. Now the hope is they'll repent, but if they don't, show them the door. But as James, Jude's brother, also said, in other cases, try to save the wrong-minded among you from the wrong paths that they've begun to head down. Jude says try to snatch them out of the fire. James says that to turn a wandering brother from his destructive path will save him from death and cover many sins. And finally, yet in other cases, it is right to show mercy to some who have gone off the divine reservation. But, be very careful. Don't become so tolerant or naive as to join them thinking that by getting closer to them, by showing a level of acceptance or even rationalization of their behavior, that this is going to win them back. We're to hate their vices. Not hate them. Hate their vices. And make it clear that we do. On the other hand, one chapter back in Revelation chapter 18, we hear the Lord telling his people on earth to what? Come out of her. Here's the point. The spirit of Babylon has been alive and infecting God's people since long before Christ was born. It's not something new. It's not something that we are to put up with. Tolerate. Or believe that we even have the power to change it. It's one thing to belong to a congregation that has a person or two in it, every one of them do, who carry that spirit of Babylon in them because they can be, and they must be, dealt with to purge that congregation of the dangers that these few scoffers present. Now it's quite another thing when the leadership of the congregation and the entire essence of the congregation, if not its very charter, represents the spirit of Babylon. If that's the case, we are to flee that organization and completely detach ourselves from it. These are not instructions meant only for people in the end times. Because such people and such congregations and such organizations have always existed. They span the ages. In Revelation, God is judging Babylon so harshly. And the residents of heaven are rejoicing so excitedly. Because Babylon had not only murdered true worshipers of God, but also caused many more to fall away from a true faith and accept lies that have led millions, probably billions into eternal death. The spirit of Babylon remains alive within many of our Jewish and Christian institutions. 
And we must be on the alert to recognize them. And when we do, we must take the appropriate actions that have been prescribed in the Bible, no matter how difficult or uncomfortable they might be. Our eternal futures hang on this. Well, when we left off last time, Yeshua had mounted a white horse and he was leading a a heavenly army that was also riding on white horses. Now, the white horses represent absolute purity, but the purpose of their heavenly riders is to make war. This is a day of judgment. Those who are saved in Christ will be spared. Those who are not will be killed. It is that simple. It is that stark. But what is terrifying to contemplate is that the era of being saved by trust in Christ is going to be over for a time. The era that we are still living in, thank you Lord, whereby we can recognize our sinful condition and repent and seek forgiveness in Yeshua will have come to an end for a time. The full number of those who will be saved will have been achieved. And there will be no further opportunity to join the ranks of those who have been showed God's mercy until later after Armageddon. We'll talk about all that in the weeks to come. Christ has traded in his cross for a sword. He will come again, but not to sacrifice himself as God's lamb. Rather, will be to carry out the Father's judgment as a ruthless lion. The blood on his robe will not be his own, it will be the blood of countless sinners who refused earlier to avail themselves of the free gift of forgiveness and mercy. And when he's finished that task, and when he's fully seated on his earthly throne, verse 15 says, he's going to rule God's kingdom with what? An iron rod. Oh, iron's a key word in all that. See, a rod is just a biblical word for a scepter. A symbol of the king's authority. An iron rod is symbolic of the unbending rule of law overseen by an unbending king. Messiah will rule righteously, lovingly, but sternly and without tolerance for sin. And what set of laws do you think he might be ruling by? The only God-given set of laws that has ever existed, that has ever been handed down. The Torah, the law of Moses. Think not? Matthew 5, 17 and 18. You get to hear it again. Do not think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. When does the Torah pass away? Only 
when the current heaven and earth pass away. And you want to know something? We're just two chapters. (laughs) From being told of the very moment when the current heaven and earth pass away. And therefore of that moment when the Torah is retired. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. The sea was no longer there. Oh, those are going to be some interesting chapters. The war that Jesus is galloping to fight and the throne that he's about to occupy will not exist on a new earth. It is going to exist on this present earth. Just as we know it today. The millennial kingdom, as some call it, that he will reign over is going to exist on the present earth as we know it today. It's at the end of the millennial kingdom. It's that thousand year era that the earth and the heavens are going to be recreated. You're going to see this very shortly. It's going to be reformed, remade. And this is the part of Revelation I'm so anxious to get to to so we can talk about it at length. I mean, I, I tell you from the heart, it's just no fun to spend so much time talking to you about judgment and destruction and death. But the glorious light at the end of the tunnel is beginning to appear. Let's reread a small portion of Revelation 19 to get it all fresh in our minds. Revelation chapter 19. Let's see here. Uh, We're going to start at verse 15. So that is on page 1552 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1552. Starting at verse 15. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations. He will rule them with a staff of iron. It is he who treads a winepress from which flows the wine of the furious rage of Adonai, God of heaven's armies, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out in a loud voice to all the birds that fly about in mid-heaven, Come, gather for the great feast God's giving to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of generals, the flesh of important men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all kinds of people, free and slaves, small and great. Now I saw a beast, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to do battle with the rider of the horse and his army. But the beast was taken captive and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the miracles which he had used to deceive those who had received the mark of the beast those who had re- and those who had worshipped his image. The beast and the false prophet were both thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that goes out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. (laughs) 
Notice in verse 15 that the emphasis is that it is the returning Christ who is the instrument of the furious rage of God. And who he is will not be disputed among humanity because on his thigh is written the words, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. I can only imagine what so many of the unsaved on this earth is going to think when they see him in all of his glory. The myriads who in terror are going to cry out, Well, okay, I can't deny it anymore. Now I believe. Uh, But that's moments before their physical deaths that will lead to their eternal deaths. Christ's rule on earth is being established. The carcasses of the countless dead will be defiled. They will be treated as no more than garbage. Because in verse 17, an angel who flies about in the mid-heaven calls the unclean scavenger birds to a great feast, he says, that God is providing for them. This is, of course, to be contrasted with the wedding feast of the Lamb. Several lessons ago, we discussed how the ancients viewed the structure of our planet and the cosmos. And without going over it all again, I'm just going to point out that it was thought that the birds as well as the stars and the sun and the moon, that they all occupied the same space. This space was called mid-heaven. So when we hear of an angel in mid-heaven calling out to all the birds to come and array themselves to feast on the decaying flesh of the wicked then the mental picture was of this great angel hovering at the zenith of the sky. Its highest point. So that all those below him could see him and hear him. Now of course this structure of earth and the heavens was only ancient myth. But it was nearly universally believed without question. So that's how it's described here by John. You know, it's fascinating how the Bible does not tend to indulge itself with graphic war details as is usually found in extra-biblical literary works, and that's because the Bible doesn't share the same objective as those other works. What's important is not the strategy and the battle plans and the tales of great heroes, but rather it is of the the triumph of good over evil. The list of those bodies the birds are feasting on is intended to show us how all-inclusive it is of the supreme finality involved. It includes every class of people, without exception, government leaders, military leaders, aristocrats, even their animals, all kinds of common people, whether slave or freemen, regardless of their wealth or status, they're among the dead. And this is because non-believers and remorseless idolaters are found in every society. 
in every culture of every race and ethnic group at every level of wealth or poverty in every corner of the earth. Christ will spare none of them and the birds aren't going to bypass any of them in their feasting. Despite this gruesome scene while it represents the final insult and offense to the dead. Remember, not getting a proper burial was a horror to ancient Hebrews. It's also necessary for these birds to do their grisly jobs. Because otherwise, I mean, think about this. The survivors, all believers, would have to spend a great deal of time burying millions and millions of corpses. I mean, the disease that would result from so much rotting flesh just laying exposed would be inevitable. Now remember, all this is going to be happening on this present earth that is going to be horribly war-torn, still suffering from the many calamities that the Lord has set upon it. So planet earth will be anything but a paradise in the first few years of Christ's reign. Verse 19 speaks of the beast and the kings of the earth. That is the leaders of the nations coming with their armies to do battle against Christ and his army. That the previous verse has an angel calling these scavenger birds to, to, to a feast is essentially giving away the results of this battle before it happens. That is the defeat of the nations is assured. You know, a question often asked in Christian circles and, and it's depicted in illustrations. Who's going to do the fighting in this battle of Armageddon? Who's, who's going to be involved? Now, while for certain the opposition is going to be human armies, that will not be the case with Christ's army. Nothing here implies that still alive believers living on earth will be joining the battle. However, here's my speculation about this. I do think that earlier passages tell us that indeed believers, and especially believers living in Israel, including a large number of believing Jews, are going to gather and prepare to do battle against the Antichrist and his forces, knowing that they're going to be outnumbered perhaps a thousand to one. I mean, after all, this is going to take place in the Jezreel Valley in Israel. And believers will know God's word and what is going to take place. not going to be a secret However, while both sides are envisioning a geopolitical battle of human armies that the circumstance seems to demand, Christ and those angels, perhaps it's, some of them are the souls of the righteous dead in heaven, are going to come and supernaturally intervene to make this battle an awfully short one. We do not read here of any protracted fighting we don't even read of any believers dying as martyrs 
as God's earthly soldiers. They just don't. What did it say? How are all these people killed? Look, look at the words. From the sword coming out of Christ's mouth. That's how they're killed. We should not neglect what Ezekiel has to say about what seems to be the same event. And as you're soon going to hear, this is where Gog and Magog come in as part of the many nations coming to battle at Armageddon. Open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39. We're going to read verses 1 through 22. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 693. So you human being prophesy against Gog. Say that Adonai Elohim says, I'm against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around, lead you on, and bring you from the far reaches of the north against the mountains of Israel. But then I'll knock your bow out of your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you, your troops, all the people with you. I will give you to be eaten up by all kinds of birds of prey and wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, says Adonai, says Adonai Elohim. I will also send fire against Magog and against those living securely in the coastlands. Then they'll know that I am Adonai. I will make my holy name known among my people Israel. I will not allow my holy name to be profaned any longer. Then the Goyim, the Gentiles, or the Gentile nations, will know that I am Adonai, the Holy One in Israel. Yes, this is coming. It will be done, says Adonai Elohim. This is the day about which I have spoken. Those living in Israel's cities will go out and set fire to the weapons to use as fuel. The shields, the breastplates, bows, arrows, clubs, and spears, they will use them for fire for seven years so that they will not need to gather wood from the fields or cut down anything from the forests because they will use the weapons for fire. Thus they will plunder those who plundered them and rob those who robbed them, says Adonai Elohim. And when that day comes, I will give Gog a place there in Israel for graves, the Traveler's Valley east of the sea, and it will block the Traveler's Passage. There they will bury Gog and his horde, and they will rename it the Valley of Hamon Gog, Horde of Gog. And it will take the house of Israel seven months to bury them in order to cleanse the land. Yes, all the people of the land will be burying them. They will become famous for it. It will be a day for me to be glorified, says Adonai Elohim. They will then pick men for the continual duty of going through the land and burying with the travelers the corpses still lying out on the ground. In order to cleanse it, they will begin their search after seven months. And as they go through the land, if anyone sees a human bone, he'll put a marker next to it until the grave diggers have buried it in the valley of Hamon Gog. Moreover, Hamonah 
will be the name of the city. Thus will they cleanse the land. Now as for you, human, Adonai Elohim says you are to speak to all kinds of birds, to every wild animal as follows. Assemble yourselves, come, gather yourselves from all around for the sacrifice I'm preparing for you. A great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel where you can eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of heroes, drink the blood of the earth's princes, rams, lambs, goats and bulls, fattened in Bashan, all of them. You'll eat fat till you're gorged. Drink blood till you're drunk at the sacrifice I've prepared for you. At my table, you will be satiated with horses, horsemen, heroes, every kind of warrior, says Adonai Elohim. Thus I will display my glory among the nations, so that all the nations will see my judgment when I execute it, and my hand when I lay it on them. From that day on, the house of Israel will know that I am Adonai, their God. Now, since Ezekiel was part of the Babylonian exile of the 6th century BC, and since the next exile that Israel would face is the Roman exile, in the first century AD, then clearly this battle with Gog and Magog has yet to take place. It's still future to us. About the only place I can fit this scene in Ezekiel 39 is at Armageddon. See, what I want you to notice is that Gog and Magog believe they're coming to fight Israel. That's who they think they're coming to fight. I mean, they're not thinking that they're going to be fighting a supernatural army of ghost-like souls of departed believers and of angels. They think they're coming to fight flesh and blood soldiers. Similar to Revelation, the enemy Gog and Magog come, they are defeated with absolutely no explanation of the battle itself, with every last one of them killed, and then the birds come to eat the flesh of the millions of corpses. So the role that Israel seems to be playing in this battle is actually about what happens afterwards. I mean, there is no mention of some glorious and improbable victory by Israeli soldiers. The remnant of Israel that I say are all believing Jews, they merely go out to gather up the weapons of war abandoned by the now completely wiped out armies of the nations, use them for fuel for seven years. And of course we find very similar wording in Ezekiel 39 as we find in Revelation 19 about these scavenger birds being gathered to have a great feast on the flesh of the enemy a feast that in Ezekiel God calls a sacrifice see interestingly in Revelation 19 notice that the beast was not killed 
Rather, he was taken captive, as was the false prophet. And we're told that it was the false prophet who had performed the miracles that had deceived so many people into taking on the mark, 666, of his boss, the beast. Taking it on to their bodies as a symbol of their allegiance to him. Although, because these people were deceived, they no doubt thought what they were doing was a good thing. And, says the verse, this false prophet influenced those that he led to worship the image of the beast. Worship is strictly an activity that takes place in the religious sphere. Therefore, the worldwide church of Babylon, that's my name for it, taken over by the false prophet after Babylon's demise becomes a tool in Satan's hand. Those thinking they were believers, God worshippers, of course accept supernatural miracles. And when this charismatic leader brings about these miracles at his command, then millions of the former worldwide church of Babylon that is now the worldwide church of the false prophet will naturally follow his every edict. I mean, I promise you, they would not do that if they actually knew the word of God. But they don't. You know, fellow believers, for centuries, a goodly portion of the church has either discarded entirely the first part of the Bible that makes proper interpretation of the second part possible, or they set the Bible aside in favor of man-made doctrines that sound good, promote certain agendas, or as is happening on our day, they question the veracity of the Bible on the grounds that it's just much too old and primitive to be taken seriously in modern times. So a kind of humanized and tolerant Christian philosophy replaces what God's holy word actually teaches and commands us to do. Well, chapter 19 ends with the beast and the false prophet being thrown into the lake of fire. Now, there's a theological debate that has gone on for centuries about what the result of being thrown into the lake of fire is. One side says that it's a complete annihilation of the physical and spiritual essence of a person or a being. The other side says that this means that the beast and the false prophet were thrown into a place of eternal torment of their souls. I must say, there is a pretty good argument for this second position because as we'll soon read in Revelation 20, in Revelation 20 verse 10, it says this, The adversary who had deceived them was hurled into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. This statement seems rather conclusive that the lake of fire is more or less what Christianity calls hell. And that the souls of the wicked dead 
that are imprisoned there are not destroyed, but rather they live on in that nightmare state eternally. Now frankly, the major reason that that first suggestion that souls are completely annihilated in the lake of fire, that it even remains as part of the debate, is the theological position that a benevolent and loving God would never allow a person's soul, not even the most wicked of persons, not even the beast, to suffer eternally. But as we see over and over again, too often church doctrines don't have much to do with what the Holy Scriptures say. Instead, they remold the character and the nature of God into their own image. And rather, these doctrines often merely fulfill a person or a group's wishes about how something or even God should be in their eyes. Now finally notice verse 21 that says how all the soldiers of the beast armies died. It was by means of the sword that goes out of the mouth of the rider of the horse. That's how they were killed. And as we discussed last time, this sword, this is not a military implement of war, but it can kill. The sword is symbolic of the word of God that divides, elects, and separates and it sends some to everlasting life with him, the remainder to everlasting darkness and death. Point being that while God, Gog, Magog and all the armies of the beast came expecting to fight a human enemy whom they believed could be easily overwhelmed, they were actually confronted by God. The battle was brief, it was gruesome, as heaven's forces supernaturally obliterated this evil army of the nations. And the only prisoners that were taken out of it were the beast and the false prophet. All others, every last soldier, was killed on the spot. The final words of Revelation 19 are, and all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. God has seen fit to emphasize this matter of the dead soldiers being eaten by scavenger birds because not even in death are these unrepentant sinners and enemies of God shown the most meager of divine mercy such as an honorable Let's move on to chapter 20. We'll be there just very briefly for today. But first we're going to read it and we'll talk about it just for a moment. Revelation chapter 20. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1553. It's a short chapter. Next I saw an angel coming down from heaven who had the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, the adversary and chained him up for a thousand years. 
He threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were over. And after that, he has to be set free for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and those seated on them received authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for testifying about Yeshua and proclaiming the word of God, and also those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and who had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands. And they came to life and ruled with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is anyone who has part in the first resurrection. Over him the second death has no power. On the contrary, they will be Kohanim, priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will rule with him for a thousand years. Now when the thousand years are over, the adversary will be set free from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is countless as the sand on the seashore, and they came up over the breadth of the land and surrounded the camp of God's people and the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The adversary who had deceived them was hurled into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Next I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing in front of the throne, and books were opened. And in another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged from what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead in it, and death and Sheol gave up the dead in them. And they were judged, each according to what he had done. Then death and Sheol were hurled into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was hurled into the lake of fire. As Charles Feinberg characterizes it, chapter 20 is the continental divide of Scripture. Now the reason is that depending on how one interprets these passages, one will either accept the notion of a 1,000 year reign of Christ over a literal and physical kingdom of God on earth, this is the pre-millennial position it's called, or there, there is no actual 1,000 year reign of Christ or physical kingdom of God on earth. This is the amillennial position. For them, Satan was bound up by Christ before he ascended to heaven. And so to this day, Satan has had no influence on earth and no influence on the church. A third millennial position is called post-millennialism, and it argues that as the church age nears its close, the millennial era begins, and when Christ comes, it signals the end of the millennial era, as opposed to its inauguration. Now, the all-millennial position requires one to heavily allegorize, in some cases, just ignore Old Testament prophecy. What we call the pre-millennial view was generally that of the earliest church fathers. And it incorporated the Jewish viewpoint. 
only after the church became thoroughly Gentile and everything Jewish was rejected was this premillennial viewpoint rejected. It was Augustine who first argued against it and spiritualized that which otherwise is literal and physical. In my view, the post-millennial position defies a straightforward reading of the pertinent Bible passages and employs a nearly purely allegorical approach of interpretation. Therefore, I am going to be speaking to you as we go forward from the pre-millennial position in the respect that the Bible calls for a literal, physical, 1,000-year kingdom of God on this present earth that begins once Christ literally returns. However, that by no way means that I accept dispensationalism or any of the several pre-millennial doctrines that are championed by various denominations that include certain timelines of events and the replacement of Israel by the Gentile church and definitions of some important scriptural terms that I think are quite off the mark. Now the foundational context upon which this chapter can be properly interpreted is this. Here we find the inauguration of the Millennial Kingdom made possible by God himself subduing Satan's power and activities on earth. No longer can the adversary deceive the nations. No longer does he have wicked henchmen to do his bidding. The congregation of believers that upon the inauguration of the Millennial Kingdom accounts for all humanity left alive on this planet and it is in no longer in mortal danger from the enemy who wants to wipe us out. Another important element of chapter 20 and the Millennial Kingdom is that it is distinct and separate from what occurs in chapter 21 which tells us of the advent of a new heaven and new earth or some might think of it a recreation of heaven and earth. I have read the works of some Bible commentators who conflate the millennial kingdom with the new heaven and earth and I cannot agree with this on a number of levels especially because it conflicts with Ezekiel's prophecies without some severe twisting of words and, and reordering of biblical events, it seems to me that the end of the Millennial Kingdom, which exists for a finite period of 1,000 years, also marks the beginning of a totally new heaven and earth, which exists for an infinite and eternal period. We're going to begin to tackle chapter 20 next time.